This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources is said to be reviewing a six-figure fine levied against it by the Environmental Protection Agency. The $100,000 fine is linked to a large-capacity cesspool on Kauai. The Kamokila Hawaiian Village in Kapa'a was forced to close two years ago. We talked to the EPA's Amy Miller about the penalty and an audit that the department must begin on its holdings of more than a million acres across the state. We've had a series of cases against Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources concerning large capacity cesspool over the last few years. And with this case, we have negotiated with the department a department-wide audit of 1.3 million acres that they oversee. This is a, a significant step for us in getting all of the large capacity cesspools in Hawaii closed. And you just took some action against a Kamehameha Schools. They were required to complete the audit, and I believe they've, they have done that of all of their holdings across the state. So this is pretty much the same thing for DLNR. That's correct. And we've also done similar type audits with Hawaii Public Libraries as well. And if I recall right, you also did this with the Department of Education. I believe it was a school in Waimanalo. Yes. The message that I want to get across is that this is a priority for EPA, protecting Hawaii's water resources. The ban on large capacity cesspools has been in place since 2005, and we are going to be out in Hawaii inspecting and looking for these large capacity cesspools and ensuring that they're closed. We are continuing to find them and will take pretty hefty fines and ensure that people are taking the steps to close them. They are quite the source of pollution. They have the potential to contaminate groundwater as well as coastal waters and streams. And are you looking at this as the most problematic first? Are you requiring the state to look at its uh, coastal properties first before the inland ones? So we we have taken a, a variety of different approaches to tackle this problem. We have been looking at large owners of land to make sure that they've taken effort. Um, and we think through audit that we can be much more efficient with tackling the problem. We're also looking at those uh, large capacity cesspools that are in vulnerable watersheds as well. How much time are you giving the state to complete this audit? As you can imagine, auditing 1.3 million acres is quite a significant amount of land. DLNR has many, many holdings of land, and so it's going to take some time. And so the audit consists of three phases. The first phase focusing on Oahu. The second phase will focus on Kauai, Maui, and Molokai. And the third phase will focus on the big island of Hawaii. With each of these, there is a certain period of time put together a list of targeted properties to inspect. And, you know, the reason why we're having them do this first is not all properties are going to need to be inspected. For instance, some properties are already going to have a sewer connection. Others may just be raw land or maybe an individual residential unit. So they will be going through a a process of developing a a list of targeted properties, and then they will go out and inspect them. After completing an inspection, they will develop a closure plan for those that have large capacity cesspools with a schedule. So this is going to take some time to complete. We anticipate the audits will be completed. The the inspection piece, piece of it should probably be completed within a year, a year and a half. And what can you tell us about the Kauai property? Um, you know, what type of business was it that was operating this large capacity cesspool? The Kamokila Hawaiian Village, I believe, was a tourist destination in in Kauai. Um, And so there was a restroom there that went into a large capacity cesspool um, adjacent to a stream. And so as soon as we had completed our investigation and notified uh, DLNR, they did go through the process of closing the cesspool. And what can you tell us about, let's say, land that might be in agriculture? Yeah, so again, this is going to be part of the process of of identifying, you know, if the land is a raw piece of land with no structure or no no restroom facility, then it wouldn't be included in the audit. But there are a significant amount of facilities that DLNR has, and they lease out to others. And so this process will help to identify those and determine what type of wastewater system they have. 
Have you gotten any update from uh, Kamehameha Schools on uh, on their closures? We have been monitoring their closures, and we're very pleased with, with the audits. We think this is a very effective way for both EPA along with the property owners in addressing this problem, and it helps so much preserve groundwater, really tackling an important problem here. You know, we, we have been working since 2005 using all sorts of tools to address large capacity cesspools. We have obviously been using enforcement tools, outreach, and we also provide funding. Uh, and we've been working with counties and with the state to develop comprehensive plans to help, you know, bring sewer and small treatment systems. This is an important problem, and the state of Hawaii recognizes the need to eliminate all cesspools, and tackling the large capacity cesspools is an important part of that overall plan. So we're, we're really pleased with this settlement because it really is a big step forward um, in closing the remaining cesspools, which we estimate to be at around 1,300 large capacity cesspools. And then uh, is there anything else you want to add just about, I guess, new technologies for processing <laughs> wastewater or... Uh, sewage? Yes, there, there are a, a lot of different ways to tackle sewage. You know, of course, there is expanding, uh, you know, current wastewater collection systems. There's also package plants that are out there. And there's a lot of new technologies on, on how to treat that really reduces costs. And, you know, when somebody's considering Closing a cesspool, it's very important that they work with the county and with the state of Hawaii to make sure that they're doing it in a manner that is uh, effective. That was EPA's Amy Miller, who's with the Enforcement Division in Region 9 out of San Francisco. She was talking to us about how the state's DLNR must begin surveying its properties for large-capacity cesspools that have to be shut down because of the potential threat to our water resources. First on the priority list is Oahu, with Kauai, Maui, and Hawaii Island to follow. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have an interview with a member of the Yik Lung family who's making his own local snacks coming up later in the show. And if that name rings a bell, it's probably because it brings back memories of packages of lihingmui and rock salt plum and other local treats with that iconic yellow label on it. The Yik Lung business got its start in the islands in the 1900s, but its brand and sales really soared in the 1960s and 70s through promotions with local uh, kids' television programs like Captain Honolulu and Checkers and Pogo. The iconic snack company got a significant boost in popularity with young adults after the album featuring this track was released in 1972. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of the band and the title of the album. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Dance, lady, dance, dance, you dance a Dance, dance, hula, lady, Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. Oh, oh, oh. 
Democratic Congressman Kai Kahele told HPR yesterday that if he loses the primary election this weekend, he won't run for office again. He's giving the governor's race his best shot, and despite missing a deadline for qualifying for public campaign financing, he's trying to make the most out of the circumstances, running for another office after just one term in the 2nd Congressional District, covering the neighbor islands and parts of Oahu. I'm the first candidate in the history of this state running for governor who will not have a single fundraiser. <laughs> okay. When have you ever heard of that? And you did try to get public funds, but missed a deadline. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, but people, I, I traveled throughout the state and people uh, struggled with accepting the fact that their taxpayer funds were going to go to fund an election. So I said, you know what? That's okay. I won't accept the public funds, and now I'm going to run the most grassroots campaign in the history of this state. Okay, well, how do you think you're doing? I think I'm doing fantastic. We are five days to go. We are doing what no candidate has ever done before. The leading candidate, the one that everyone has christened as the next governor of Hawaii, has spent over $3 million. Another candidate has self-funded her campaign, $2.2 million. And we're running a campaign that will probably spend, at the end of the day, less than $200,000. Well, there are probably some voters out there uh, who wanted you to stay in Washington, D.C., and were maybe disappointed um, that you opted not to continue past your first term. So many people loved what I was doing in Washington, D.C., and my argument to them was, imagine what I'll do as your governor. If you loved me in Washington, imagine what I'm going to do to transform this state as the next governor of Hawaii. The fact of the matter is, my family is in Hawaii. I miss my kids. I miss my wife. It is not an easy job to represent Hawaii's second congressional district, you know, 5,000 miles away from Hawaii. So I went to Washington. I got an incredible amount of experience. I developed partnerships and relationships that is an incredible value to the office of the governor. I helped deliver the American Rescue Plan, the third installment of COVID that kept this state going and our small businesses going, kept Hawaiian Airlines from not going bankrupt. I helped deliver the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's bringing $2.8 billion to Hawaii over the next five years. Helped write the bill as a member of the TNI committee. I helped navigate the shutdown of Red Hill as a member of the House Armed Services Committee, bringing my 22 years of experience as a current lieutenant colonel in the Hawaii Air National Guard and the only member in the House Armed Services Committee wearing the uniform assigned to Indo-PACOM. Helped lead the shutdown of Red Hill. And then finally, bringing all that experience back to Hawaii after one term in Congress. Those relationships don't end. I bring them to the office of the governor. It is an incredible value for the people of Hawaii. What do you have to say about the recent uh, discovery of hydrocarbons in our monitoring well? In Deeply concerning. The United States Navy has either withheld information or has lied, not just to a member of Congress, but to people of Hawaii since this crisis began when I first got the call on Saturday night, November 20th. Now keep in mind, I consumed water from Red Hill less than a week later. So did my family. I went in house to house on Monday night when the Department of Health said stop drinking the water. Went, got bottles of water, got samples from residents right off of Nimitz at Halsey Terrace and Caitlin Drive. Took that water back to Washington and held it up in a House Armed Services Committee hearing at the beginning of December saying, we have a crisis of astronomical proportions in Hawaii. Where are we at today? The plume is moving. Our chief engineer, Ernie Lau, is asking the military to release records of all the spills over the last 80 years because they haven't done that. Red Hill was classified until 1995. No one even knew the thing existed from 1943 to 1995. So getting, getting records from the United States military pre-1995, unless everything is released, is not going to be easy for us to do. I'm right now focused and the delegation is focused on delivering this $1.1 billion of federal funding that is currently sitting in the Congress before this session ends to lock in the shutdown of Red Hill before this Congress ends so that in case the House flips Republican, in case the Senate flips Republican, in case we lose the White House in 2024, half of Washington, D.C. doesn't want to shut down Red Hill. Many colleagues of mine in the opposite party, some even in my own party in the U.S. House, on the Armed Services Committee, don't want to shut down Red Hill. It is imperative that we lock it in, in this Congress, in this budget, so that a previous or a future Congress cannot reverse this.
and that we shut this facility down in the next two years. That is the most important thing. No matter the outcome of this election on Saturday night, I'm going back to Washington to finish the job in September, in October, and in November before this Congress ends. And that's, that's the most important thing that I'm focused on right now. Folks may have had high hopes for you in Congress because you're a native Hawaiian yep. and that you bring uh, sensitivity um, on a lot of these issues that are important to us. As you run for, for governor, how do you expect to navigate through the TMT issue? I appreciate the fact that people were excited about a native Hawaiian returning to Congress following in the footsteps of Senator Akaka. And keep in mind, I'm the seventh native Hawaiian member of Congress during the territory and during statehood to have walked the halls. I'm not the first, definitely not the second, I'm the seventh. Uh, I think and feel it is more important for us to have a native Hawaiian governor leading this state over the next four, if not the next eight years. Because like you just said, many of the most divisive issues in this state, Mauna Kea, 30 meter telescope, Pohakuloa, Makua Valley, Red Hill, all the military lease lands, these are difficult decisions that we're gonna have to make. And it's going to require an incredible leader who can walk in different worlds, who has worn multiple hats, can look at issues through different lenses. And I believe I have that. Native Hawaiian ancestry from Hawaii Island, um, you know, has all the military experience that I have. This is something that I bring that is unmatched with any of the other candidates running for governor. And I believe it's going to be critical to navigate issues like the 30-meter telescope. I have been on record many times saying I oppose the 30-meter telescope as it, is, as it is currently proposed. I believe that the TMT was set up for failure years and years ago. And how they planned to build that on Mauna Kea was the wrong strategy. And how they approached it without getting community input early on was the wrong strategy. At this point, the 30-meter telescope desperately needs outside funding from the National Science Foundation to even break ground on the project or complete the project. If they take federal funding, that is going to require a Section 306 NEPA, a federal EIS that has never been done on a 30-meter telescope before. A matter of fact, the only time a federal EIS has ever been done on Mauna Kea was about 20 years ago when the Keck telescopes wanted to build and NASA wanted to build an outrigger project around the Twin Kecks. That federal EIS failed. Here's the problem. We want to pit native Hawaiians against native Hawaiians. We want to pit the non-native Hawaiians against the native Hawaiian community. This is not a native Hawaiian issue. Yes, native Hawaiians were on the front lines of the Mauna Kea Access Road. The Kupuna were on the front lines. The Manawahine were on the front lines. But surrounding them were hundreds, if not over a thousand people that weren't Hawaiian. There were people that have grown up their entire life in Hawaii, people that just arrived in Hawaii. I was on the mountain, I was on the road, and I saw that. It was an incredible gathering of all kinds of people that were standing up for what they believed in. TMT is one of the most divisive issues in the state. Look at us, look at how long we're spending talking about it. Why don't we talk about infrastructure? Why don't we talk about roads, bridges, highways, schools, housing, energy? Well, it's important to all, listeners. It is important, but let's talk about issues that don't divide us while a project has to seek outside funding from the National Science Foundation, has to go through years of an EIS process, an EIS process that would probably get drug into the federal courts, and let's deal with it later. Let's deal with it later. What, let, well, you know what we should do right now is allow Governor Ige to stand up this new Mauna Kea Management Authority, appoint members, confirm them to the state Senate, get this new management structure of Mauna Kea up and running. Let's decommission telescopes that are no longer used and obsolete. Let's work with the existing telescopes to figure out how we can get them new leases so that they can stay on the mountain. They have certainty. They can invest in their facilities. Let's look at ways that we can better manage access, do more education on Mauna Kea. Let's look at how we can manage the mountain all the way from the, from its, 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 the tallest peaks all the way down to the, the forest and the shoreline. You know, we all want to fight about 30-meter telescope. Let's look at Mauna Kea more holistically. Let this project figure out its funding. When you got the funding, when you have all the, the court approvals and the clearances, then you come back to see us. And I tell you what, Catherine, it's not going to be done in this next administration. I guarantee you the next governor of Hawaii, four years or eight years from now, will still be talking about TMT. So let's worry about things that we can agree on. Let's turn to tourism and the economy. You know, you fly for Hawaiian Airlines. Yep. You know how important tourism is is there's a big push to diversify there's a big push to try and manage the numbers better what are your thoughts on that 
So clearly 10 million visitors pre-COVID was way too much. We created this monster by the type of marketing and the type of uh, visitor industry engagement that we did through the Hawaii Visitors Bureau. That needs to change. You have right in front of you the newspaper, today's headline that talks about the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancements tourism contract to market and communicate tourism uh, to the world. And I think that's a great step in the right direction. Native Hawaiians marketing Hawaii. And we can look at creating destination management plans that are more genuine, more authentic. Case in point, come here to the island of Oahu. Where do you go if you're a tourist? Maybe you're out at the Aulani, out at Ko'olina in that area. You're in Waikiki, you're at Kualoa Ranch, you're at the Polynesian Cultural Center. Well, what I would rather see is a more authentic, indigenous-based tourism model where we are bringing tourists out into our communities and getting them actively involved with the aina, get them in the kalo fields, get them uh, in a regenerative way, giving back to our island community so that when they leave Hawaii, they're leaving it better than they found it. I also think if you want to manage tourism, we can do what other locations have done, is manage our infrastructure. On the island of Kauai, there was a proposal by the Department of Transportation Airports Division to add two more gates to Lihui Airport. Bad idea. If you want to reduce tourism on the island of Kauai, you don't add gates to the airport. And so how we can manage our infrastructure is going to be really important to how we manage our tourism. And at the end of the day, I really believe that number needs to come down. We need to create a more genuine and authentic experience for our visitors to Hawaii. And we need to get back to what Hawaii used to be. You know, if you go down to Waikiki at night, it's not the same Waikiki I grew up as, as a kid on a Saturday night. And, and that's something that needs to change. What do you want to do for agriculture? Oh, my goodness. Number one, I'm going to increase. Well, first of all, as governor of Hawaii, I'm going to appoint the next director of agriculture who's a farmer. What a novel idea, right? Let's get someone in here who knows how to farm and someone who also knows how to run a business. Next thing, as the governor of Hawaii, I'm going to um, submit to the legislature in the governor's budget, an increase of almost four times the current DOA budget to the Department of Agriculture. We need to invest in local farms. We need to invest in local farmers. And finally, I think government has a unique position to set the conditions for agriculture in this state and to grow new industries that don't exist. The largest restaurant in the entire state of Hawaii on any given day is what? The Department of Education school cafeterias. We should be buying as much ulu, kalo, wala, grass-fed beef, locally grown food for our kids, poultry, milk. You know, that's what we should be doing. If I said, I want to buy as much ulu as possible, we just created a market. I tell you what, the ulu co-ops across this state would be going off. Everybody would be growing ulu because we would build not just the ulu processing facilities, right, but the distribution the net networks. We would be feeding our students locally grown food, and we should be doing it in every single Department of Education cafeteria, every single prison, every single hospital that's run by this state. We should not be buying processed outside food from the mainland. We should be growing our own food. We can do that with the Department of Agriculture and the University of Hawaii. That was Congressman Kaikahele, who sat down with us yesterday afternoon before heading to Kauai to continue campaigning in these last few days before the primary election. Kahele says when his father, the late Senator Gil Kahele, asked him to step in and serve out his remaining term, he never considered he would go on to run for Congress and now for governor. He said if he loses this weekend, he will not run for office again and will focus on his family. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Ampila Rampili author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reimagining a future that is just and prosperous for. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. For our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about campaign spending and the Honolulu City Council races. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us with the snapshot. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and we should probably point out that the Honolulu City Council races, those are nonpartisan, but you've got some uh, uh, veteran uh, lawmakers and you have some newbies. No, most definitely. And it's really interesting throughout the three races. And of course, um, for District 4, we're going to have to wait and see for the uh, November election. But uh, for the primary coming up in District 8, you have Ron Munor, who's a former city council member um, who used to represent District 9, but now is running for District 8. Now you have, um, for example, uh, Representative Val Okimoto, who's also running for District 8, but for District 2. Um, no one's really a politician, but everyone knows uh, Makua Rothman, um, who's a surfer, and then Matt Ware, a former city prosecutor, and uh, Chad Suniyoshi, who's a politi- political consultant, and Heidi Suniyoshi's ex-husband. And then in District 6, you also have um, Tyler uh, Dos Santos Tam, who's a former Democratic Party chair, and Ikaika Hussey, who's a former uh, labor organizer for United Here Local 5, and the list goes on. Yes, and uh, we we should point out that Ron Menor, um, he's running in a different district because of redistricting. <laughs> yeah, and this is actually the first time um, for District 8, actually, um, which he's running for. This is the first time Mililani is actually um, represented by uh, one council member now. It used to be divided between District 9, District 8, and District 2. So Ron Menor can now run for District 8 because of those uh, redistricting. Yes, and uh, he turned out to be the big spender. Yeah, he was a big spender, actually. He outspent, actually, all the candidates across the races. Um, If we're looking at the um, election period, um, he basically spent a total of more than a... Two hundred and forty-eight thousand, but um, in uh, contributions, he's um, raised more than five hundred thousand. Um, so that's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, he uh, uh, obviously has the name recognition and you know, and the experience. It's mm-hmm. just the some of his uh, constituents have changed. Yeah, and it's going to be a little bit different for District 8, but some political observers say it's a contested race, meaning that any one of them, the candidates could win. Um, uh, other than Ron Menor and Val Okimoto, who's a representative in the House, you got Dion Mesta, who is um, Brandon Elefante's legislative aide. Charmaine Duran also um, shares some political background. She also um, worked on the council for a couple years as an analyst, um, but her last position was um, the director of the Office of Council Services. Um, Keone Simon's also interesting, too. Um, this is his second time running for political office. And so, gosh, um, you know, uh, as far as like the types of things that people are uh, spending their their money on, about social media, posters, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, and even um, newspaper ads too. And um, I think uh, Keone Simon he also spent some money on um, KHON commercials. Um, so you get to really see um, the final push, especially in July, how much you're going to be spending and raising uh, before the primary. Well, uh, I know in your article you mentioned that um, uh, Tyler Dos Santos Tam uh, actually bought uh, uh, jar openers as a promotional <laughs> campaign <laughs> item. Uh, that was one that actually struck me. I, I, I chuckled a little bit, um, but I've, I've talked to Tyler actually um, yesterday, um, just kind of confirming um, about the promotional items. So he bought more than a thousand jar openers just to, uh, with his logo on it, just giving it out to um, folks who definitely need jar openers but he spent a little over a thousand dollars just for um, promotional jar openers so I thought that was um, pretty interesting well th- that made me laugh too because I believe I still have one for uh, Brian Taniguchi <laughs> one that's very very old <laughs> one of his his first ones and so uh, it oh, and it does help handy. yes they they do <laughs> they come in handy and I, I I can see why Kapuna love them because if they need help mm-hmm. you know and they see your name they think of you so it's it, it's it's pretty brilliant actually <laughs> 
Yeah, but now we're going to see who's going to vote for him because of it. But um, another thing that was actually really interesting was Keone Simon and Makua Rothman, who were actually spending pretty big money on the Hawaii Leadership Solutions, which is um, and council member Andrew Tupola's um, consulting firm, um, as well as um, the uh, Wilkerson, um, which is uh, Braden Wilkerson's um, a public firm to uh, kind of help these candidates get the training and mentorship. So, for example, Keone Simon spent 21 grand so far this year uh, for the Wilkerson, um, and then 15 grand for the Hawaii Leadership Solutions so far this year. And then Rothman also spent 20 grand on um, professional services for the Hawaii Leadership Solution and 12 grand for uh, the Wilkerson services. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting just to see that develop, um, you know. Uh, you know, making money off of uh, uh, consulting services for elections. Uh, but yeah, so we'll see uh, how successful they are with their spending. Uh, but thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. The start of the pandemic in 2020 brought unprecedented challenges for children and youth across our country. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us to talk about the 2022 Kids Count data book that was just released this week. It paints a picture of the struggle of young families. Good morning, Casey. Good morning, yes. Uh, So the Annie E. Casey Foundation releases this annual report called the Kids Count data book. Uh, They basically collect data from the federal level, U.S. Department of Education, more importantly, the U.S. Census Bureau American Community Survey. And so this report uh, found that Hawaii jumped up four places from last year, which is a bit of an improvement, but there's more um, worrying, more concerning uh, factors within this report. Uh, There was a special emphasis on mental health this year. Uh, They started uh, looking at several indicators and, you know, they have about uh, 32 indicators within 16 categories or something like that. Uh, But within this mental health one, they found that depression and anxiety among Keiki uh, shot up 23%. And uh, that is roughly 2,200 more kids struggling with depression or anxiety in 2020 than in 2016. Uh, I spoke with several advocates about what could be contributing to this. Although the report doesn't cause uh, cite any factors specifically, uh, they speculate that maybe economic well-being may play a role within the depression or anxiety. Uh, another uh, big factor, uh, a big uh, statistic that was in this report: seventy-two percent of Hawaii eighth graders scored below proficient math levels, ranking forty-second in the U.S. Yeah. And so we, we've heard about learning loss. We've been. Uh, addressing learning loss this last uh, year or so, especially with remote learning. And so, as you can see, that is one of the big factors that we can see point to the numbers. That was pretty shocking, you know, because I know the department has made um, good progress over the years in getting our test scores up. So to see this was just so sad that we've lost ground. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the DOE uh, says that they do have uh, programs in place. And I spoke with a counselor at Wai'anae uh, High School not too long ago uh, regarding the first uh, year uh, first year back with, no restri- with hardly any restrictions. Uh, and, you know, she says that, you know, they have the resources to address these things. It's all about uh, getting the rubber to meet the road at this point. Uh, another factor, uh, another thing that was brought up within this report, uh, 1,100,000 children lived in families that spent more than 30% of their income on housing, uh, which is considered a high-cost cur- burden. And so that all goes back to affordable housing. And so uh, like we uh, alluded to earlier, when kids uh, live in families where they're little, uh, where the economic well-being isn't on par, uh, they feel that stress, and so that could be a cause for uh, the depression or anxiety. Uh, and so Hawaii, uh, 48th in the U.S. when it comes to uh, children living in uh, high-cost uh, high burden uh, families. Another one, uh, we've also uh, heard about uh, roughly 5,000 teens between 16 and 19 didn't attend school or work. So the absenteeism uh, that uh, we have been hearing about over the last year, year and a half, uh, is definitely showing. And that's roughly 9% of uh, teenagers within this um, 
age group as well. Uh, but, you know, despite all these factors, Hawaii is 22nd uh, in the nation uh, when it comes to the overall child well-being. Uh, that's a four-place bump from last year. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, Hawaii dropped nine places from 17th to 26th uh, in last year's report. And I spoke to uh, advocates, uh, Nicole Wu, who's the director of economic research and policy at the advocacy group Hawaii Children's Action Network. Uh, they are involved uh, with this, uh, with the local side of this report, as well with the University of Hawaii's Center on the Family. And she says it's a little deceiving when we see these rankings where we're doing a little bit above average. And so uh, this is one of the reasons why it could be a little deceiving. It comes down to the economic well-being of families. The official poverty rate doesn't take into effect the cost of living here in Hawaii. Our poverty rates are always much lower than what we're actually seeing out in the community. So in that way, these rankings show us doing a little bit better than we probably would if we had a more accurate poverty measure at the federal level. And so she says a more accurate way to kind of um, look at this is by using uh, what the Census Bureau has, a supplementar, supplemental uh, poverty measure, which does take into account the uh, cost of living. And, you know, a dollar here doesn't get you as far as a dollar, say, on the continent. Um, and so just real quickly, breaking down where we ranked, tr traditionally, the state does really well in uh, child health. Uh, that's uh, partly because of uh, employer uh, health insurance uh, that really goes a long way for families and 15th in family and community. Um, and that is basically uh, su support services for families. But again, uh, economic well-being and education is where we are definitely lacking, coming in 34th for economic well-being and 35th in education. So I guess so now that we have this report, Oh, well, I guess we can look to the legislative session and see what the lawmakers can do to address some of these issues. Exactly. And, you know, the legislative, the last legislative session did well in trying and uh, addressing some of these things, such as uh, promoting early child care uh, and also preschools. Um, but yes, this report is just a report card, seeing how we are in, uh, compared to the rest of the nation and where we can go from here. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HPR's Casey Harlow. To check out the actual report, you can go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha United Way, partnering with local workplaces to help impact change by engaging their teams in the community. More about its workplace campaign at auw.org. On the next Fresh Air, Washington Post political columnist Dana Milbank talks about his new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. It examines how the party got to where it is today, with some elected leaders, candidates, and officials still endorsing the lie that Trump won, pushing conspiracy theories, and exploiting racism. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island, hicommunityhealthcenter.org. today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know the name of the band and the album that helped boost the popularity of the local snack company Yik Lung in the 1960s and 70s. The band was started in the late 60s by local musician Peter Moon alongside Hawaiian music legends Palani Vaughn, Albert Kalima Jr., and Cyril Pahinui. After releasing two albums, the lineup changed to feature Moon and brothers Robert and Roland Casamero. Their first album together, Guava Jam was released in 1971 and is seen by some of the by some as the spark of the Hawaiian cultural renaissance. Their next album was released in 1972 and its cover featured a large glass jar with a big yellow Yik Lung label on it. That image on that album 
help propel the snack company into a broader public consciousness. The name of the band, The Sunday Manoa. And the name of the album, Crackseed. Those were the answers we were looking for, and we didn't have any winners today. <laughs> but that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you grew up in Hawaii, you probably remember buying snacks at the local crack seed shop after school or on weekends as a kid. Or you probably heard stories from your parents and grandparents about being faced with an endless wall of yiklong goodies and trying to choose between getting the lihingmui, ika, or the lemon drops. Just talking about it gets your salty, sweet, and sour taste buds going. Derek Ching is a third-generation entrepreneur who grew up working in his family's Yiklung warehouse on Dillingham Avenue. Started by his great-grandfather in the 1900s, it closed in the late 1990s. But that nostalgia for the yellow-labeled crack seed and Ching's love for Li Mui prompted him to get back in the snack business. The conversations Lillian Song sat down with the snack guru to reminisce about the Yiklung dynasty and to talk about his new candy line, Hawaii's Choice. So, Derek, how old were you when that commercial jingle came out? Oh, God, that was like back in the 70s. We did so many different commercials back then. And, you know, back when we were doing them off the different TV stations in Hawaii, I mean, I was like in first grade, like back in our Redeemer school, I remember. And then my parents used to yank out the classmates at the given time and then all of us you know, carpool down to the TV station and do stuff. That actually was a modified tune. I couldn't find the original. The original was, you know, sometimes when I'm happy, I stick out my tongue, put on flavor of Yaquan. <laughs> That's what everyone's going to remember back in our generation. Back then, if you recall, remember crack seeds and all the different things, we had the smaller bags. I remember, I mean, they were priced something like 25 cents or even less than that way back in the day. Yiklung no longer exists except for photo albums, memories. Yeah, we started way back when, and then they went through the generations. And then as time went on, you know, the family had, we all had different visions on where things were at. Things kind of just migrated away from where it was. So I ended up going off to my own, moving out to Asia now in Singapore. But, you know, I always have those family ties and going back. And I always thought to myself at some point, I want to try to do something. And then actually inspiration kind of came with my kids and my daughter. You know, at some point I wanted to remember back what we had as a family. And I kind of started this project kind of for fun. <laughs> you know, all I have are just really the stories that I got growing up. As far as I can recollect, the company you know, started in the feeds. And then eventually my grandfather, Fred, he had his wife, Gertrude, my grandparents had taken things over. He started from what I had called back on Vineyard Street. Now, again, I wasn't even around back in those days. And then they got the space on the corner of King and Dillingham. So they had the factory and plants over there. I grew the business. We had a whole bunch of trucks, a bunch of sales drivers. We had two factories there. Most of my childhood memories came from growing up at the plant over on Dillingham Boulevard. Give me some landmarks. What would we see there now? You know, it's funny. It's like I go back and forth to Hawaii periodically, right? So when I go down there, going towards Costco, I still see all the buildings there and the warehouses back. It's multicolored. The buildings there, it's all leased out to, I guess, other folks because we sold the property back. I think it was somewhere around the mid-90s or something along those lines. And I'll show my kids as well to try by that. So that space, the Odiak Lung Factory, was your old stomping ground. That's what I remember growing up working. In fact, I've got good memories, too, because when we were kids, um, you know, folks and stuff, I'm talking really young, you know, like seven, eight, nine years old, they'd have me and my brother doing something in there. Well, it was on the assembly line where we were helping them pack. So my brother and I used to hop up the assembly line and help bag and seal some of the plums and stuff like that. I remember that. Back warehouses were where we used to have the chips. Aside from the seeds, when we used to bring in the seeds, we used to also have the aquan potato chips, different varieties of flavors. And then eventually we had the taro chips that we bought in. And all that stuff was produced off the back warehouses. As a child, I'm sure, I mean, you're living this, not really thinking about you know, the history of it or whatnot, but this is your family's business. You just talked about how you and your brother would be on the factory floor helping pack. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's all we kind of knew. You know, all the employees, I remember, it was really great memories. Was, I mean, a lot of those guys 
at passed on, all of them are really great people to work with, just to know as we were kind of growing up. And just all in all, really great spirits. I know we had somewhere upwards of 60-plus employees of different parts of, of business. We had, back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones. I do remember the old walkie-talkies. All the different trucks had the walkie-talkie drivers. And I'd be in the main office with my brother just going, hey, 10-4. Roger, you know, grabbing the mic thing. That was a lot of fun. So were you also science inclined? Did you like playing with uh, recipes? I, well, that, I, mean, I, I kind of did that inadvertently as I kind of grew up in there, being tinkering in the back. And then in the course of, I used to run calls and with various different flyers and stuff as well. And so that was kind of a learning curve and experience was going into the business. You know, what you know, and I graduated from Marquette University with degree in finance. And when I got out, that's where I thought my direction was going to go. And then my parents said, no, 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 you're, you're coming back into the business and, you know, we'd like it at least, you know, learning about what's going on over here. So that's when I started going, okay, and, you know, learning a little bit more about what was going on, how the operations work, and then, of course, tinkering with back with different formulations of our products and stuff there. So that kind of gave me the foundation of it all. And then as I went out and met with various different distributors and at the same time coming up with new ideas that I bounce off of people, that's really where my learning curve came into going, well, how can we make things better? What can we design differently? That was my background um, or my stomping ground of, of learning curve anyway. And so the Valley Antes line, what we had was we used to have a lot of visitors coming into our, it's our office. And there was one of the vendors that actually handled things with tequilas. So I brought up the idea of shrink wrapping, leaking moist seeds around tequila because it was becoming really popular in the restaurant. So I remember back in those days where there was Ryan's Park Place and Compadres, the bars used to have those big vats with leaking moist seeds soaking in there. And so I learned, okay, you know, a lot of these people, they, they would take the powder and rim the margarita glasses or they they have the seeds soaking in the tequila, which basically would take the bite out of the tequila. Subsequently, we came out with a type of sauce that we wanted to try to put to market. And so being that one of the distributors at the time, they had a specific tequila that they were running. I was trying to come up with some type of a branding for like a Mexican flavor. So we came up with the Alientes name. I came up with a separate kind of formulation to try to make a more healthier version of a leading white sauce, less sodium. We removed some of the ingredients like the aspartame, and we came up with a sucralose type of mixture for leading sauce that was actually fortified with vitamin C. And, you know, it was a really good product. We had it out in the stores for a while, but, you know, unfortunately at the time, volume just wasn't, you know, a lot of people liked it, but it just wasn't at a pace that, you know, made it worthwhile for me to continue it. So I, I kind of let that go. And in the midst of my travels into Asia, I had actually met with a couple of other folks that actually were in the candy business. Decided, well, hey, you know, maybe we could come up with a, a candy type of idea to help promote the sauce. We try that. And so what we found was a way to actually take the leaking powder, which was being used for margarita mix, and then kind of compress those into tablets. We formulated the entire thing so it would be compliant for being brought into the United States. And, and that was the start of, of Valiente's leaking candy back in the early 2000s. Also, trying to go into more of, of a healthier version. So, I was always trying to think in terms of what could be the next generation of leaking moy. So, that was our, our little fetish of leaking, leaking moy, leaking sauce. What could we come up with from there? <laughs> you definitely have leaking on the brain. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just such a popular thing, just that explosion, especially during the 1980s. It's like leaking almost everything, right? You had leaking gummy beers, leaking mangoes. Um, when I was actually um, taking a visit a few years back, I was inside one of the warehouses and um, actually at the trade zone. And one of the guys there gave me the idea of people sprinkling leaking powder and lemon. They say, well, if we came on the leaking lemon, that actually was the start of our new product, the true leaking lemon peel. So leaking in different variations, in different versions. Early 2000s, you were doing the Valiente leaking sauce, which then also turned into a Valiente hard candy. The idea between the candies was to do something a little bit different. So what what we did, the initial product that we had was a Valiente's leaking can. What it was was taking variation of leaking powder and compressing it into kind of a tablet form, kind of like a sweet tart. I had actually moved out from Boy over to Singapore back in around 2008. So our kids are basically raised out over here in Singapore, but my daughter um, 
well, she was three by by that time, and she was well, she grew up a little bit with the flavor of Hawaii, and she loves coming back to Hawaii every year. So when we go back, you know, I wanted to have something for her and both my kids. My son as well. She has kind of more of a marketing tangent. She wants to learn about the business, and she loves history and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, one of these days I just sat down and said, look, let's let's create something uh, and do something a little different. So I had the Valiant Days Legion Plum brand out for a while. And right after COVID, unfortunately, my grandmother, Gertrude, had just passed away. Not from COVID. She passed away at 100 years old of natural causes, you know, around 2020. And so I thought, you know, we have one line out here. Let's give it a go and try out those different things. And, and at that time, I was going to have some fun with my daughter doing it. So we actually took the Valiant Days brand and decide, well, let's relabel it, make it something that's more Hawaii-ish. So that's when Hawaii's Choice, we brought that out. So I actually had that on the bottle as well. So we rebranded things from Valiente's into Hawaii's Choice. And we wanted to you know, have that flavor, something special for locals that they knew. And so that was the impetus with my daughter to actually try to create something, have some fun with them as they kind of redevelop. It's actually me developing it, but kind of showing them as we kind of go to the way. So this has really been a fun family project to play with and at the same time growing something that could be meaningful. That was Derek Chang, creator and owner of Hawaii's Choice Candies. He was talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Ching says he'd like to add a new generation of treats and entrepreneurs to his family's legacy. We'll share links on where to find the treats on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we continue looking at local businesses who are innovating with new products in an effort to help us become more sustainable and more healthy. Got an idea for a local business to spotlight? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.